Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in London with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today from Los Angeles is the excellent RJ Smith. Welcome, RJ. Hey, Barney. It's great to be here. Great to see you. Thanks for getting up at some ungodly hour to be with us here. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> We'll be talking to our guest about his brilliant new Chuck Berry biography, as well as about African-American LA from, I guess, Joe Liggins to NWA and beyond. And we'll be, we'll be saying our goodbyes to Wilco Johnson as well. But RJ, let's start in Detroit, where you were raised. Can you tell us how the Motor City shaped your musical sensibility? Yeah, well... Two huge ways. One was the Top 40 radio in Detroit, which played everything. You know, you could hear a country song, like a Perry Como song, the Osmonds, Garage Rock, Otis Redding. It was a crazy mix. And that the radio for me was how culture was coming into the household. So that made a big, you know, that, that radio educated me. And, and it showed people crossing all kinds of cultural, racial, age lines, to uh, share into a sound. At the same time, in Detroit, 1967, race riots. I'm in my white corner of the city, and black clouds. You can see the black clouds of smoke over the city. And so as a kid, you know, not 10 years old yet, trying to figure out how these two things kind of make sense in the same universe, that led me to writing and thinking deeply about music well, ever since. Some introduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Black clouds over Detroit. Can I ask how old you were when the when the riots occurred? Yeah, eight years old. Eight years old, right? Sure, that's gonna that's gonna leave an impression, isn't it? So you were kind of part of the, the white flight exodus as well from the inner city, right? I think you mentioned that in this rockcritics.com interview that we're going to feature on the homepage, which is a really really interesting interview mm. for any listeners to this episode. And from there, you also in that interview. Talk about your your introduction to you know, the Stooges, fittingly in a garage, right? Your your friend Peachy's garage. T- tell us about first hearing the Stooges. Oh, you know, I mean, by by then I'm in the suburbs and unhappy uh, as as a proper teen maybe should be, and uh, <laughs> you know, sitting around being bored. And Peachy Bachersky plays. You know, he was in the, the Velvet Underground and and the Stooges, and I don't know, it's it's a different universe than I knew about, and I had a Catholic upbringing, and he was introducing me to sin, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> That's, the, I mean, supposing you had a different neighbor who introduced you to, you know, like the Partridge family and the Carpenters or something, you could have had a completely different life, RJ. Oh, oh my God, yeah. So but but Peachy, Peachy turned you on to all the right, the right things, including, yeah. of course, Cream Magazine, which which you talk about in that same interview. Cream, and I mean, we talk a lot about Cream Magazine and Lester Banks on this podcast. Everything comes back to that, but you're fairly kind of, you know, explicit in your references and acknowledgement of how much Cream and Lester, in particular, influenced you as a writer. Absolutely. I mean, we used to, as I, as I said in that interview, we, we would ride our bikes out to uh, the next suburb over or one of the next ones over uh, where Cream's offices were and just kind of seriously, we would just park our bikes, 
look up at the window and I don't know what, you know, pay our tribute. Peachy got in a few times. <laughs> I I just uh, preferred to stay outside and uh, imagine the debauchery going on, in, you know, inside and just start scheming about how I could get into a place like that too. Yeah. I suspect it was a lot of, is mostly people with typewriters and cigarettes and very little debauchery going on at all. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Better not to spoil the mystique. <laughs> But this took you, like, I guess, like, directly or indirectly, took you to to New York and to the world of the Village Voice, which we also seem to talk a lot about on the podcast. And by that point, Lester, of course, has moved there. I mean, were you, I guess you were aware that, that Lester and others had moved to New York. And did that seem just like an inevitable path for you? Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely did. I, I always knew I wanted it be there as soon as possible after college and to walk around and you could just walk in, <laughs> you know, you could walk in um, and, and find people to talk to. There's Robert Criscow. You, you can hear him before you can see him in the back. You know, there's Richard Goldstein and Greg Tate was just starting exactly the same time I was starting. And uh, Nat Hentoff, you know, Stanley Crouch, all these people I've been reading and, uh, seemed like they were 10 feet tall or, you know, it, it, yeah, it was a, it was a great time. In that interview that I keep referring to, Stephen Ward mentions this piece that I remember from, from Vanity Fair in 1987, James Walcott's piece where you are name checked as like one of the, the sort of disciples of, well, Chris Gow and, and Lester and, and others. And he called it the noise boys. And his, Oh, I mean, I was amazed that this stuff was getting into Vanity Fair after all those all those sort of underground years. But he was sort of saying it's all kind of peaked and the thrill is gone. And you say to Stephen Ward, well, I think that said a lot more about James Walcott's feelings than about a scene. He was ready to leave than it did about me and Chuck Eddy and Greg Tate. I mean, did you did you feel like the, the the next generation of noise boys in New York. <laughs> I mean, you know, Chuck and Greg and I are so different and our approaches are different and I I I love them both and knew Greg and I talked to Chuck from time to time. You know, I went to elementary school with Chuck as it happens. Okay. So yeah, I mean look those people that he was writing about, they were, you know, amazing and those were people that took me to school. So you were at The Voice, RJ, from the early 80s until 1990. Uh, there's, a, there's a great thing in this interview where you say, damn, that place needed a human resources person, the one person who might have unified the whole staff. But <laughs> you clearly have very happy memories of, of the place, yeah. even though all these in, in kind of fairly insane people clacking away at their typewriters. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it was, it was just an amazing time to like be, you know, for me to be in my twenties and to, you know, have wide eyes and try to keep my mouth shut as much as possible and listen to what everybody else was saying and yeah, take it home with me and, and uh, try to try to decode <laughs> what they were doing and saying. Yeah. But I mean, there was, there was, you know, there were so many cultural wars going on there of the cultural folks versus the quote unquote political folks 
male energy versus female energy. Yes. Uh, th- those were the two in the building pretty much at the time, multiple energies nowadays. Just, you know, so many lines that one day it would be one kind of struggle and the next day the battle was on a different front. And everybody was, was well, it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> hey, what, what, what years were you on The Voice or New York for? Like 81 to 90, yeah, 81 to 89 or 90, something Right, like so in a way, the great years, also the fairly terrifying years in some oh. respects. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was, it was, it was the age of when you, you paid for it and before it became free a few years later, you know, it was fat, all, you know, the internet hadn't taken off, so mm-hmm. all the ads were right there in one place. Uh, yeah. Where were you living? Where, whereabouts in the city were you living? You know, I always lived in Brooklyn. I just, right. I think, uh, well, financially was, it helped. And also just to see the amazing stuff going on in New York City and Manhattan and then to kind of go away somewhere and process. Sure. sure. <laughs> You've talked about Chris Gow as an editor. I'll just quote again from that interview. In the first piece I wrote for Chris Gow about the Dream Syndicate, I took a shot at one of his sacred cows, Lou Reed, in his domestic bliss period. And Bob picked up the copy, yelled at me, and said I was full of shit. And then he helped me to make the sentences better and published it that week. So I've sort of heard that about Bob Criscale before, that he could be, you know, he could yell at you, but then then he would edit you beautifully and you'd end up with a great piece. And did he yell at you more than more than that time? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, oh, yeah. It was something about me, I think. And I, it was, I definitely could try to um, to be noticed. I'll put it like that. I was trying to be noticed, trying to get attention in, 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 in as just, just getting going. Wanted, that was my route, I guess, for better or for worse. So that was one way to do it. And he, he has, you know, and, and he had and has huge, strong opinions. He's very comfortable expressing them. And he wants that, that back and he want, he thrives on it back and forth. That's the great thing about Bob. And and uh, it's not a one-way thing with him. If you can give it, he'll take it. <laughs> and um, so it was a lot to learn, though. And the first, the first time, I was just like, "Wow, what?" I never been, I barely been edited before, and never been edited so out in, in so theatrically before. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, I mean, being in New York at the time, you you're there when you, hip hop starts emerging. I mean, you know, eighty one is what Rappers Delights released, I guess. How aware of hip hop were you in the early the early eighties? That's not super early. I mean, I was mm-hmm. I was aware of it as a reader and as, and somewhat as a listener, but sure. definitely not like not seeking it out, not knowing where to seek it out when I first when I first got to New York, sure. and not feeling comfortable seeking it out going up to the Bronx. I didn't right. have friends up there. I didn't. I didn't. You know, and and um, so it was more uh, definitely from a, a bit of a distance. Right, right. I mean, because you, you, you know, going by what you've written about, you obviously love black music. I mean, how, was black music something you absorbed in Detroit primarily initially? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just the, the radio. Just to repeat myself, the radio just really was was my instrument. Sure, <laughs> in, sure. Instead of an instrument, that's that's what I played. So hugely, every, everything, soul music, jazz, and I, I remember the first time I heard. Uh, you know, Thelonious Monk being played on the public radio station in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so that all was another big reason why I wanted to go to New York was to hear that jazz, to hear that dance music, you know, to, to, to hear that stuff that was making me leave home. 
suppose the obvious question might be, Arjun, you know, here you are, you've made it in New York, you know, you've you've made it in the, the Big Apple, and then in 89, 90, you decide to move to Los Angeles. So what prompted that move? Yeah, well, a bunch of stuff. One thing that someone taught me that, that definitely I think is really true and probably still really true, although different, but it, it, when you when you get a good editor – Bob Criscott was my first great editor, and 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 as good as I ever had. Kit Rackless at the Village Voice was a great editor, is a great editor. He moved from the Village Voice to LA Weekly, and about a year after he came to Los Angeles, I came out here to continue working with him. So it, part of it was to keep working with somebody that I n- was learning from and was making my work better. Part of it also was I was ready. I was ready for some some change. I thought I would be in LA for a year or two. You know, go to Disneyland, go to the beach, try to try to get it, wrap my brain around the culture here, and then go back to New York. <laughs> and that was, you know, uh, thirty-two years ago. So. <laughs> so, how early in your time in LA after you'd settled there did you start to become interested in the sort of the deeper history of African American music? in that city, um, which resulted in, you know, you writing, researching and writing a tremendous book, The Great Black Way. So when, when did when did you start thinking about Central Avenue and burrowing deep into that world? Yeah, like like in the 90s, in, in the mid 90s. or Yeah, I, I it, it literally happened. And it's strange because, you know, you, you, you live in New York for a minute and you hear about you hear about 125th Street. You hear about Harlem right away. Mm-hmm. You hear about the centrality of that. You, you move to L.A. and and you hear about uh, what the people in your immediate surroundings maybe are talking about, but you might not hear about what's going on across town or or the culture of East L.A. or or the sure. Hollywood Hills or whatever. And so I, eventually, one starts to hear about Central Avenue and 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 whispers or or rumors of its importance and what was there. And uh, I looked for a book. Uh, now, there are great books, as we all know, about Los Angeles music history and California music history. But at the time, there wasn't a single book about Central Avenue. You know, so when I couldn't find the one to read, I, I decided to try to, to try to write one myself and, 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 and learn about it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love this book. I came to it from, you know, back in the 70s, I started getting into people like Wanoni Harris and the sort of the, the, the 40s, 50s jump blues people. And they would be written about in obscure blues magazines, but there was no one wrote about the culture where they came from. Whilst, let's say, they didn't record in Los Angeles, Central Avenue is absolutely central to that whole sort of music scene. So getting the Great Black Wave is just fantastic. And uh, revelations like, well, you, you write about the gay scene there, about Charles Brown playing in these gay clubs just off Central yeah. Avenue. So this is a revelation to me. Yeah. You know, it's fantastic yeah. stuff. Mm. Oh, well, that's awesome. These people were alive, some of them still then. Sure. And, and you know, like so many, so many things one can write about, like, like if we talk about gangster rap, say, certainly the, the, the levels of, of trust and outreach one has to do to get you know, a question answered for lots of good reasons mm-hmm. in, in that dimension, you know, versus knocking on somebody's door on, a, on you know, 48th and Central and right. saying, uh, you know, I, I love that record you made 25 or more years ago. Yeah. Can you talk about it? 
Mm. Yeah, that's a rare experience. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. And like as I said, it's a subject which has been really largely ignored by all music historians. I think you can safely say that. You know, yeah. I mean, partly because it's an area, particularly the the forties and fifties, the blues stuff, the jump blues, the R and B, wasn't the sort of R and B that whites were listening to in the sixties yeah. and seventies. You know, I mean, everyone talks about Chicago blues. Hardly anyone in those days was talking about. The, the one only Harris's and so on and so forth, the, the, the Bull Moose Jacksons of this world. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Charles Brown, and, and it's for just the reasons, Mark, that you've just outlined, that, that we've added this beautiful piece, RJ, that you wrote for the LA Weekly about Charles in July 1997. And you addressed precisely what Mark was talking about. You say the image of the blues tossed up by alt-rockers like John Spencer's Blues Explosion. It's the kind of blues personified by the by like Fat Possum Records, blah, blah, blah. And if racial stereotypes lurk in the white craving for black primitivism, they mm-hmm. lie side by side with the search for the ultimate source of all guitar min- minimalism. And and then and Charles, you have Charles Brown saying to you, my mind was never, never geared for low-down blues. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> I'm sure that, I mean, look, there, there was low-down blues in Los Angeles, but Charles Brown certainly didn't deliver low-down blues. He, he, he delivered this. You describe his, his, the sound of, the sort of mournful, sad sound of, of his kind of, you know, like cocktail hour piano blues beautifully in, in this piece. I, I mean, I Thank love you. those records. I mean, he even denies, or you know, Clifford Solomon, who played, sax in his group says he's not a blues singer but you kind of say well he is it's just it's just not the kind of blues that john spencer's interested in. it's the kind of blues that wears a red cape i love your description of, <laughs> of Charles Brown in this piece. It's, just, it's wonderful and, and i think it does really get to the heart of like well blues doesn't have to be someone you know barefoot and you know it's, it can be it, can, it has many more dimensions than many people ascribe to it and i think that's a really important thing to draw attention to yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I th- and, and the other side of it, I, I can get why, you know, I think there's some, um, there's, there's, there's class aspirations and people ha- want to identify in, in one way with uh, a class status and not in another way. Uh, yeah. And so I totally get when someone, when, when, a, when a white stranger maybe comes out and says, I love your blues records, you know, they want to frame themselves a little differently than they think I'm framing them. So yeah, the blues, man. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of blues in the blues. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but, but but I mean, you know, we we've got a handful of pieces by a guy called J.T. Gibson who wrote for the mm. California Eagle, oh, uh, yeah. and they're from like 1948. Joe Liggins and his Honey Drippers. I mean, this is big swinging stuff. It's club music. It's dance music. It's really up. It's not some sort yeah. of tearing at the soul sort of stuff. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is stuff I love. I mean, Pink Champagne by Joe Ligon's Honey Drippers is absolutely my top ten. I think, but uh, that guy was a great writer. That guy had like so much style and and was yeah. right there. That that guy had his ear down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic stuff. There's a funny thing you say in that interview with Stephen Ward. This is a couple of years before the Great Black Way comes out. You say I spend a lot of time on this upcoming book looking for secret messages in Joe. Liggins is the honey dripper. Uh, <laughs> did you find them? 
Oh yeah, but I'm I'm not at liberty to share them. No, of course they wouldn't be. <laughs> well, they wouldn't be secret anymore if you no, did. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> It'd be not. well, it's because it's filth, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I mean, you know, Mark, what you're saying about the sound of of rhythm and blues in 40s LA, yeah. you know, clearly Central Avenue was just this wild place. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, I think, RJ, to say, well, you know, everybody knows, you know, what New York was like and Harlem was like and the, the great clubs there and so forth. And for years, no one... No one really knew what a, what a wild place with numerous clubs and, and, and tiny little joints and all sorts of just, just this extraordinary African-American life happening there that just wasn't really documented at the time, other than by J.T. Gibson and maybe a handful of others. Yeah. Have you ever seen that fabulous book called The Black Music History of Los Angeles by Tom Reed? Did you ever see yes. that, RJ? Yes, yes. Like lots of photographs, lots incredible of, um, photographs. Yes, yeah. yes. No, I, I, I have, and that, that, that is a, that's a keeper. That one for sure. Yeah, it's, yeah it I, is... I, I must return your copy, Barney. I've been sitting on it. Oh, for about, you're, you're about the one who's got it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, the, the other Glad thing I is, it. is how segregated the city Los Angeles mm. was, and in many respects, still is. That in the forties, fifties, was a police chief that that. They recruited um, white, oaky refugees from the Dust Bowl to the, the police in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And their job was to keep the blacks away from uptown, white, Hollywood, you know, smart Los Angeles. It was an inherently, it was an entirely racist police force. I mean, is that, is that right? Yeah. Is that- absolutely. A, a, absolutely. A, a brutal, you know, brutal police force. I think LA had this, you know, <laughs> Like like in New York, you know, there's a lot more cops per citizen, and I think in a lot of big cities that's probably true. Mm-hmm. L.A. they they made this. I don't know if it was ever literally decided. It was, but it was more just an understanding that we're not going to pay a lot, but you're you know we're going to have X number of cops, and you guys are going to have to work really hard to like to keep order, and we don't want to know about it. We the citizens, mm-hmm. they don't want to know about the brutality. They just want it to make it go away whatever it was. LA is a place even today that uh, if, if there are people or um, uh, shades of humanity or classes that you don't want to see, you can, you can pretty much steer clear of them, you know, right. get, in, get in your car and stay at home or get in your car and go in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So in, on the one hand, it's statistically incredibly diverse and there are so many, there's so many fronts to explore, but you got to want to explore them, and a lot of people don't. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, going. I first went to LA, I guess, in eighty-seven or eighty-eight, and it struck me then as being extraordinarily segregated. And it's still, you know, even now. I mean, like we were in DC in the summer, and DC is so much more an integrated city than LA is. New York is so much more integrated than, than LA is. It's, it's 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 like the deep. It, people don't realize it's kind of like the deep south, but in in in, in a gorgeous climate with a lovely sea <laughs> you know yeah i mean new york you you go in that subway and you see you see all kinds of you see the whole spectrum yeah you know we don't have yeah. we, we don't we don't even have sidewalk particularly here right i i was told i mean i was walking back to the 
um, to the hotel from the studio down sunset at like one in the morning, and I was pulled over by the cops saying, "What are you doing walking?" Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, typical. Okay. Typical, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, RJ, ten years ago, you published uh, a fantastic book about James Brown, the One, and you have now followed that that up with a book. I can already say it's a very acclaimed biography of Chuck Berry, who was certainly nothing to do with LA. Though, of course, he performed there, and I mean, it is it's. Uh, you've done an extraordinary job interrogating the the life of of Charles Berry. I mean, what sort of determined your your choice of the next subject after James Brown? Yeah, I mean, part of it is I've kind of got into that biography, I don't know, niche or groove or something, and uh, it suits me. <laughs> getting even before the pandemic, uh, I, part of my brain definitely i'm a i can spend a lot of time in a library i i you know i i I like microfilm uh that's a six sentence i'm not sure i'm not (laughs) don't don't use that as a pull quote but but i I guess that i have a side of uh you know enjoying a hunt that takes place in a quiet dusty setting uh i i love interviewing people and that's always hugely important but but also, I, I'm kind of suited to that slow grind of tracking information down and and make trying to get the dates to all line up and all, all that kind of grind. Mm. <laughs> so that's a part of it. Um, I don't want to always. I want to write more books, and I don't want them all to be biographies. But they let me talk about lots of stuff in the context of one person's life. And sometimes, you know, you, you really go outside that life. I might be talking about St. Louis uh, history for a while or uh, the history of echoes in, in, in the early era of chess records because yeah. it's fun or because it interests me and I hope it interests somebody else or, or whatever, but you can get a lot of storytelling and information in, in the, in the frame of one individual. <laughs> yes. It is such a fascinating and complicated story, the life of the life and music of Chuck Berry, is it not? I mean, I noticed that Nelson George had written about your book on his mixtape blog, and he said uh, that Chuck Berry, who did as much to revolutionize music globally as any of black music's other giants, usually doesn't get listed alongside the acknowledged African-American greats. And he also says that for the generation of white musicians who evolved rock and roll into rock, there's literally no person more important in defining how that music sounds and what it talked about. How a black man from St. Louis became the bard of white teen angst is the main subject of R.J. Smith's book. Does that feel right to you or is that a little reductive? Oh, that I, well... That's that sounds awesome to me. And su- <laughs> su- super nice of, of Nelson's and that yeah, that definitely that's that's a key thread and and maybe the main thread or one of the main ones that that I was working on as I was writing for sure. I, I should say Nelson when I was right after Chuck died, I heard Nelson be interviewed on on Canadian radio and he talked about uh you know, he he said um those early those founders of the music, you know, they just were different, almost like a different life form, he was saying. And and the rules they had to live by, they had to make themselves. And and he wasn't justifying anything or or explaining away anything, but he was really pointing out something that really um, stuck with me. And and I put I, I used that 
inspiration uh, early on in this book too. So yeah, I mean, it's to hear Nelson say something like that, that amazing piece he wrote that, uh, that means a lot to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think uh, trying to understand how Chuck through his experience, he transcended his immediate experience and, and, and the difficulties he had to have this vision of mass community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's, that's huge to me. Yeah. I mean, he's so unique, isn't he? I mean, one and you you write. I haven't actually finished the book. I'm probably about a third of the way through, and I've been it's very, long. very. It's long, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I'm really engrossed in it. And you write so interestingly about things like, for example, the influence of country music on his writing. You know, Maybelline's Maybelline first yeah. hit is essentially yeah. a sort of an adapted country song, isn't it? Maybelline, why can't you be true? you quote things that he said and wrote about appealing to the white market and not being really not being a rhythm and blues singer so and, and so forth and you write of course about the just the, the sort of difficult things that turned him into such a difficult and strange man with peculiar sexual habits yeah. Um, let's just leave it at that. One of the things I really was interested in is you, there's a point where you say there was just no gospel in Chuck Berry's songs. You know, you can when you think about the great the sort of pantheon of rock and roll giants from the 50s, you know, it's like there's, there's more gospel in Jerry Lee Lewis's music yeah. really than, 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 in, than in Chuck's. He was doing something very, very different. I mean, in, and the, the lyrics are, of course, just on a different level from pretty much anything other than maybe Lieber and Stoller in that, in, in that era. Yeah. And so, I mean, wh- what do you think made him privilege lyrics and diction to the degree that, that, that he did and what makes those songs so extraordinary? Well, yeah, a couple things. One, I think in in the neighborhood he lived, he grew up in, called the Ville in St. Louis. Uh, it was a it was a very um, it was like a middle class black island to some degree, and it predated the the Great Migration and from the South to the North. That you know, Muddy Waters was a part of going to Chicago. All kinds of folks moved out of out of, out of Jim Crow South to relative difference in the North. But when newcomers came to the Ville, you know. You better talk right, quote unquote, or you wouldn't right. be accepted. So things like an accent or um, jargon might be frowned upon uh, or signal uh, a lack of sophistication uh, to, to folks in the Ville like Chuck's parents. So that, yeah. that was, so he started listening to the way people talk and try to break them down and understand who they were from that. Uh, white, black, young, old. Also, poetry was big in, in, in Chuck's house. Uh they they were expected to memorize and recite poetry at the dinner table. You know, it was an age when newspapers, you know, they there were poetry columnists, not writing about maybe maybe writing about poetry, but really just pages of poetry might appear in the black press or the white press uh, when they needed to fill an extra column. You know, they had poetry ready to throw in there, so you could. So so that was a part of it too. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the the African American poet, mm-hmm. was huge in the Barry household, and 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 Chuck could recite him from memory. Yeah. Do you think that that particularly was something that influenced the way he wrote words, which allowed his songs to speak to white, young white white America, 
in a way which was almost unique at that time. Yeah, I think so. And the frustrating and telling thing about Chuck, he, he never broke down how he did it, right? I mean, right. you know, he never wrote his uh, his book of uh, that Dylan just came out Philosophy with. Philosophy of, of, of popular yeah. song. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, my God, I would have well, paid to, to read that book or find that, that's, that those notes in, in, in an archive. He kept it a mystery. And, right. and he guarded that mystery mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean also i mean it, it, he he kept the world at arm's length in a variety of ways and so and i've read quite a few interviews with him and he really doesn't he says as little as he possibly can he is not someone who's going to open up to anyone and he usually wants to be paid for what he does say <laughs> oh, by the word oh, by the oh, word yes. <laughs> <laughs> i mean but he is his autobiography you know even though you know, you've got to kind of read between the lines and, and there's a lot there's a lot of sort of difficult truth that Chuck leaves out. It's still one of the more remarkable, you know, properly self-written autobiographies by a star of that kind. Would, mm-hmm. would you would you agree? Archie? Absolutely. I mean, that yeah. book, what it, the, the lack of, of uh, a deep look at his how he worked as an artist, his story of how he came to be Chuck Berry and, and his upbringing and his uh, relationship with women, it's hugely telling, and it's yeah. shed so much light on on the art, for sure. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I don't know where Mark came in with Chuck Berry, probably slightly before me, but my unfortunate introduction to Chuck was 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 really seeing him sing, singing My Ding-A-Ling on top oh, of the pops. Sure. <laughs> you know, and I, that sort of, in a sense, coloured my whole sort of take, take oh. or, or perspective on, on Chuck Berry. And of course, you, you knowing what we know now about, you know, the sort of cameras he set up at Berry Park in the, the ladies' bathrooms and so forth, when you, when you see him singing my ding-a-ling and sort of making comedy of of, of all of this. It, it's 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 pretty creepy, isn't it, RJ? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, and you know, he definitely had things. He played the part of the rock star for sure. But this stuff is not, you know, it's not whatever. It's not appealing. Uh, there's no way you can say, well, they all did it. You know, it, it is creepy. And yeah, I I tried to wait on looking into that stuff later in the process because i didn't want that kind of uh stuck in my head for too long yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, it's a, you know it's, it's a problem we struggle with i'm jerry lewis has just died had a less than perfect personal life in all kinds Indeed. of respects and uh, what where, where and how do we separate the man from the art and it's it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a difficult one for all of us it's just yeah it's just tough well you know matt snow who gave your book a five-star review in the new mm. mojo uh, happened to to see last night i think he he finishes his review by saying you know trust the art not the artist but we don't live in a culture that that does that automatically right You're so right. so you know you can't help kind of you know you can't help thinking about this this stuff i'm looking forward to i mean you know hail hail rock and roll the the taylor hackford movie and just how i mean in terms of Chuck's character, you know, this sort of, this, this, 
pretty intimidating guy that he was. I mean, how how sort of he belittles Keith Richards in oh that film. God. I mean, I haven't seen it for years. I'm looking yeah. forward to getting to that bit in your yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, but Keith does give as good as he gets yeah. in, in that. <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen it for a long time, so I, 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 I can't remember. I just remember Chuck just really putting Keith down. I mean, what, what is what, – what, when you – you must have seen the movie a, a few, at least, I oh, would yeah. say, twice, RJ. What is your, what's your read on that? Oh, I, I, it's an amazing document, and there's yeah. there's some just incredible throughout material that you know, it's musically it's a mixed bag, but mm-hmm. the act of of Keith putting together this amazing band to pay tribute to Chuck and to make him to help him make sounds like he made back in the chess days, and to see how that works itself out in real time, and the process of frustration and fighting and yelling and resistance that Chuck puts up. You learn a lot about Chuck from watching him push against people. You know, if, if, if Taylor Hackford says, stand on that spot because the camera is going to be on you right there, you know, Chuck is either not going to stand on that spot on purpose <laughs> or he's going to say, I'll only stand on that spot if you give me $200 right now. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, yeah. So, so it, it makes a problem is for a filmmaker, but it also is like an amazing reveal on on how he what makes him tick yeah yeah i'd be interested to hear i mean so another review of your amazing biography of him by chris charlesworth concludes on the note of in the end though while smith is generous in his endorsement of berry's musical accomplishments the portrait he paints is of a solitary self-destructive morose and hypersexual satyr for all the pleasure that Chuck Berry's music has given us he didn't get or even seem to want much pleasure in return which is i think a really interesting concept that you know that he's someone who didn't didn't actually enjoy the all of the trappings and it's kind of you know almost like a, an exercise in collecting money at, at various points i'd kind of be interested in your in your take on how it the sort of internal world of chuck berry in that sense i think there's a lot to that I, at the same time i think that he he did feel pleasure. I mean, and <laughs> good kinds of pleasure or nourishing kinds of pleasure. He 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 could be happy, but he really struggled. I think with mm. with probably with some kind of depression. Probably with uh, it wasn't easy for him to feel. He he loved an audience, and he came to life in front of an audience. But it was hard for him to feel that or to even acknowledge it when it happened, for sure. And it took him a long time. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, people ask why he stayed in St. Louis virtually his whole life. Yes. And part of it, you know, is because, well, that's where the fans were, he liked to say, or, you know, his family was there. And that's all true. But part of it definitely, I'm convinced, was because he didn't get the love that he deserved there. And he was like, I'm not going to let the SOBs drive me out. I'm going to stay here just to show them no. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, that, but, but, you know, things like work, things like money definitely mattered to him and, and gave him the feelings he was craving, but he, you know, he had a few friends, not many. And uh, yeah, it was a struggle for him to feel a connection with other people. I think. In the wee, wee hour. That's when I think of you. I just want to mention one of the pieces that we're adding about Chuck on the homepage because there's 
three or four. First is from Record Mirror in April 1964. And it is Guy Stevens uh, going to Chicago, going to the chess studios to meet Chuck and interview him. And it's just got some you know, fascinating detail in it. Like he goes with Chuck to a club called the Pride and Joy to see little Walter. Uh, and and everyone in the in the club goes crazy and demands that Chuck gets on stage with mm-hmm. Walter. And, and, and then at his own request, he asks little Walter to play Mean Old World because he wants to play Mean Old World with little Walter, which is wonderful. And then in that same week, Guy is actually there in the studio when Chuck records Promised land <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean oh, wow i i wow. wish i wish guy stevens i wish i could have spoken to him for sure, sure. i mean yeah, the president yeah. of the chuck berry fan club you know yes. early on numerous interviews in you know on the on the on the website uh with him uh, you know he he loved chuck and you know he, he helped bring him to pie records and, and make some of those records come into existence mm-hmm. uh, yes. so yeah yeah that's yeah. that's a great My, piece I, I, I suspect there were two peas in the pod in all kinds of respects because guy wasn't the most stable person in the uh-huh. world. <laughs> <laughs> to put, put it mildly <laughs> yeah well, listen, I mean, suffice to say, anyone listening to this, do go and buy and read the fantastic Chuck Berry in American Life by R.J. Smith. It's published here by Omnibus Hachette in the US, but it is, you know, already being claimed as one of the great music biographies. So, And, all, um, and also by The Great Black Way, because it'll yes. open your eyes to oh. stuff you'd never have Never have known before. It's fantastic. And James Brown, the one. As and well. James Brown, the yes. one. Yes. <laughs> go and get, go and get, go three, and get them three, all. Three for the price of two. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> some enterprising bookstore must be thinking about a deal. Mark talks about hip hop and your uh, writing about hip hop earlier. And I wanted to sort of come back to that because one of the other pieces we're featuring by you on the homepage is, I mean, just to randomly pick this piece about NWA. I mean, you mm-hmm. hadn't been in town very long. And so, you're writing about Ice Cube having left and this major kind of beef to do with money with Eazy-E and Jerry Heller, the the manager of NWA. So, I mean, you know, when you when you moved there, sort of, you know, gangster rap was, as we know it, West Coast rap, gangster rap was 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 what like. Uh, I think you even quote you quote Nelson George, the aforementioned yeah. Nelson George, in that piece. And yeah. you say it was only two years ago, just as NWA was putting out its first single, that Nelson George could write that while hip-hop had gone national, reaching out from Brooklyn, Harlem, and the Bronx to places like Miami and Los Angeles, it hadn't yet gone regional. That is, no place else had come up with a competing rap sound. By the end of 1989, New York rappers would have given their James Brown record collections and their gold anything to sound as nasty as NWA, to matter to the hip-hop nation, like Gangsta Gangsta or Fuck the Police or Express Yourself did, which I think is brilliant. You said the, the West Coast has taught New York a thing or, t- a thing or ten about huh. how, t- how to market hip-hop to America's middle class. So you're kind of right there, at the, you know, just, just as the, the sort of phenomenon of West Coast gang- gangster rap is, is taking off. I mean, can you remember how that felt? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, honestly, I, part of it is like I, – I, I love that music and I was listening to it from afar. So to come to LA, I, I had an immediate choice I had to make because I'm editing a music section at the weekly LA weekly and uh, wanted to write about stuff as well. And two big things were going on in LA at the time that I could sense. Uh, 
you know, one is gangster rap and, and what's what we're talking about. And the other is, you know, what remains of the hair metal scene. So, so let's see, <laughs> where, where am I going to look and who am I, who do I want to really talk to? And, who, you know, so it was no, so I, I, I stayed off of sunset pretty much and, 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 and tried to, to do what I could uh, to understand and communicate about gangster rap along with a lot of other writers we used. I think you made quite a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Phew. Yeah. So yeah, there was, it, it was new. It was new and it was new to people here in LA and there wasn't a superstructure, you know, you could show up somewhere and maybe, maybe, you know, you could talk to easy E all of a sudden or, or, you know, whoever was in town. It was probably a little tiny bit like, you know, Chuck and Chess back in the day. Uh, th- yes. There wasn't this this uh, superstructure in place to uh, tell everybody, this is how we do things. There w- nobody knew how they were doing things. They were reinventing it again. And yes. that was amazing to see from the distance I was watching it from. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a Well, I mean, RJ, because we knew we were going to be talking at least briefly with you about about th- that subject and the NWA piece, we've dug out this audio interview from 1991, which Mark is kindly going to tell us about. Yeah, it's that Andy Gill interview, Ice Tea in, in the summer of 1991. It's great. I mean, because this is a really seriously articulate man he's interviewing and the, the, the guy could just talk. And he does at some length. It's fabulous. Starts off talking about his then kind of interesting movie career, just come up in movie New Jack City, where he oddly enough played a police officer, which he was scared to do because he thought he'd get a lot of grief from his people about that. But then he goes and he starts talking about Los Angeles, about gangster rap in Los Angeles, about telling the truth about black Los Angeles. Jasper, let's hear the first clip, which is about precisely this. Original gangster. First, they didn't want to believe that it was really going on in this place that was only shown on TV as having palm trees and shit. But it's funny, as soon as I started rapping about it, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all the news started showing the gang scenes on TV. And and, and all of a sudden, L.A. transformed from being what everybody thought it was to what I told you it was, you know. And I know in the U.K. you guys saw that, I mean... Free me, L.A. was written off as being just a very la-la land, you know. And when I first came over there and did interviews, the press ripped me because of what I said. They said I was a liar, you know. So now it's like I've been vindicated now. It's like now the British press are like really like down with me. Because they know how stupid they were the first time when I came. Oh, he talked. How could he possibly talk about murders when all LA is is limousines? And, you know, I'm like, you're full of shit. I mean, the trip about LA is you can come here a hundred times, but if you don't ask to go into the neighborhood, you'll never go. It's not on the tour list. A motherfucker from the West Coast, LA, South Central, fool where the Crips and the Bloods play. When I wrote about parties, it didn't fit. That was real shit. <laughs> it certainly isn't. Um, having said that, I, I think Barney. I mean, certainly you and I have at different times have have 
gone for at least a drive through that part of town. Yes. Which is basically, it's interesting because it's flat, suburban, single-story houses as far as the eye can see. But it's 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 poor. It's 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 it's, it's all of that stuff. And so he talks. In fact, he's moved out. He's made some money. He's moved out, and he says he's still he can still rap about those things, even though he no longer lives in the hood. He goes and talks about different types of rap. He's, he's he's very ecumenical. He's he talks about Public Enemy and he talks about De La Soul, all of that sort of stuff. He's also got this metal band, Body Count, and we were talking about it earlier about the black the black roots of rock and roll. Let's have a listen to this clip. This is a, a, about that. First off, people got to get first in tune with rock and roll first. Black people invented rock and roll. I mean, when rock first came out, it was Chuck Berry and Little Richard and stuff. Then it was changed in, by people who had Pat Boone come in and redo all Little Richard's records. And it, it was more of not an attempt to destroy the music, but just to separate the races again, keep white girls from screaming for black guys and keep us all separate so that they could run this shit all fucked up. And now they brainwash people into believing that rock is guitars and R&B is not. Whereas you listen to Isley Brothers or Prince and it's rock and roll. My attitude is if you if you deal with music and you just kind of bounce along the top surface and don't rock the boat, then you're doing pop music. But if you rock that boat in any fashion by saying anything, whether you're Sinead O'Connor or Ice-T or Too Short or any then you're doing rock and roll because now you're rocking the boat. <laughs> wow. Isn't that great? I, I mean, I love that uh, clip partly because he mentions Chuck Berry, yeah. you know, which is just, which is just great. And the, that idea of a kind of some sort of continuum from like Maybelline to cop killer. It, I, I, yeah. I sort of like to trace that right. Black rock and roll. Mark, what else, what else does he talk yeah, about? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, he, he's asked about violence, about his own gang roots and so on and so forth. And he talks about the glamour of violence. Very honestly, he says, he actually t- t- refers to the intoxicating values of gangs, mm. which I think is just a fantastic phrase, you know. He talks about white kids getting into rap and about how fearful the, the white establishment is, because the PMRC were really sort of getting going around this sort of time, and about, you know, putting stickers on, on albums, parental advisory stickers. And that leads him on to talk about how, how about America's need to separate the races, which is a really interesting subject. You know, I mean, in a way, he yeah. could have talked about that for another hour and been interesting. In the way yeah. that, like, you know, putting that sticker on is essentially segregating the record into... Yeah, but he, talk, he, he yeah. talks yeah. actually about no, the no, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that's the, that's the start-up jump-off point. But I think it's really interesting, sort of, he, he sort of predicts that then you'll get stores that only sell 18-plus records and they'll be totally separated and all that kind of thing. But, but he does use it as a really fascinating starting point for it to go into the broader stuff. Yeah, but Jasper, he also predicts that one day all of America will have a brown skin of some description. Mm. Uh, I mean, in a way that he says that's what the Amer- America's fear is the fact 
that eventually all of America could yeah, have Yeah, he goes skins. into like the idea of like white purity and he identifies yeah. that in a way that's very contemporary to discourse now very when you get we get people going, well, you know, any any drop of non-white blood is is kind of diluting. It's, it's all this kind of crazy conspiracy stuff, but he's identifying yeah. it at that point as something that, that he's, you know, worried and concerned and confused by because it, it doesn't make any sense ultimately, but he's, he's, he's really, really interesting to listen to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. RJ, where do you place Ice T in like the story of of West Coast hip hop? Yeah, he, he's he's huge. Obviously, he's also a little apart somehow, mm. and I don't know. Yeah, and I think and I think that was by his choice to a degree more than anything else. He was an actor and an excellent actor. He is an actor, mm-hmm. yeah. and he is he's a little older. I think when he started, he was a little older than yes. Than, than NWA for sure, and and that's a factor, and yeah, and Body Count, you know, a really good band, not not not, you know, not Nirvana or something or or whatever, but but really good, and the right song, <laughs> the perfect song for that moment in LA history for sure, and he got attacked by the president and the vice president and the yeah. PMRC, and and um, yeah, <laughs> he got he some mattered. attention. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I look it's a great interview. It really is good. You know, he, as I said at the beginning that he's he's such an articulate and interesting man who's got plenty to say about plenty of things. So give it a yeah. listen. Yeah, I mean I think the piece that came out of this is a really great piece that Andy wrote for Q September 91 and he mentions going to see Body Count and they're already playing Cop Killer at this point. So like a year before the you know this this just absolute you know, eruption mm-hmm. of rage around that 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 track. He's he they're already playing that, so that was interesting to remember. Um, but he's yeah, he's really. I mean, he's it's a great great interview. He's a joy to to listen yeah. to. I really do recommend mm-hmm. it. Interesting detail because you mentioned about you know Watts and South Central being very very flat, and he he at this point is is living above suns the sunset strip you know he's made it out of the, <laughs> yeah, the ghetto yeah. and he says i i have my i i get my I have my buddies over and they've never had a view before he says they've never seen a view yeah and you go what hang on a minute what he means is he says they've been on the flat ground so mm. long they've never seen a view other than i guess you can see you see the hills in the distance but they these guys his homies have never looked down on Los Angeles before. Uh, it's extraordinary yeah. thought, really. Again, the segregation. Well, absolutely. About, uh, you know. uh, uh, absolutely. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, so that's Ice T. Great, great interview. So, mm. at this point, I think we want to say we 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 need to say goodbye to the great Wilco Johnson, who yeah. we lost just a few days ago. Mark, we were introduced to this extraordinary figure as the guitar player in Doctor Feelgood, were we not? Can you remember your first impressions? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I saw them in 1974 a couple of times playing the Hope and Anchor when they were still part of the pub rock sort of period in, in London music. Yes. They were great. But for me, 1975 at the Roundhouse, I saw them at the Roundhouse, and where he had a big enough stage to do his stuff in a way that he never could on a small cramped pub stage, he was electrifying. They were electrifying. You know, I, the music itself is it's, it's a, it's a very narrow box of music. It's a particular type of English guitar R&B. He admits himself heavily derived from the Pirates, from Mick Green, the guitar player, was his biggest influence as a guitar player. But in a way, you could say that, that 
punk, they, they were absolutely part of the seed of what became punk rock. They played rock and roll with a directness and an energy which we hadn't seen, for, felt like years. Yes, you know? yes. And this is 74, 75, you know. Uh, and actually, you know, people like John Lydon and so on have all said that the Feel Goods were a huge influence on, on, on them. Yeah, I mean, I mean just, just fantastic. Then he left pretty early. The Feel Goods actually had the biggest hit after he left, which slightly embarrassingly is the one that a lot of people have been playing on the radio in tribute to him, and he's of not course. even on the bloody record. Yeah, you know? yeah. And actually, I know... <laughs> I've heard stories. I mean, he himself has said that it was his own temperament which led to him being having to leave the field goods. I I know otherwise that that actually he was being isolated because Wilco read books. He was someone who who was had a fascination for English literature and so on and so forth. And the rest of the band, particularly Lee Brillo, the singer absolutely dismiss this and Lee Brillo used to absolutely mock him so mm. so I know Wilco has always publicly said it was his fault but actually I mean I kind of know better but fantastic man I really the other things remark about him he was 13 years ago diagnosed with pancreatic cancer was given said he didn't want chemotherapy was given nine months to live extraordinarily another doctor decided that actually the type of cancer wasn't quite the cancer they first thought it was they operated removed a three pound in weight tumor from him and he survived uh, and uh, and it gave him extraordinary he, he read his own obituaries to all intents and purposes he read all the tributes he was going to read when he died when he was alive and then got another 13 years which is just amazing fantastic stuff yeah, I saw him interviewed once um, at the Louder Than Words Festival, and he mm-hmm. said something just so extraordinary. It's it, it stayed in my mind ever since. And this was probably, I don't know, two or three years after that that diagnosis, misdiagnosis. Yeah. Sort of. And he said, he said, you know, he he got the bad news, and he left the doctor surgery, and he walked out into the street, and he said, I realised for the first time that I was alive. Yeah. And it was no, like, it was yeah, just such an extraordinary well, well, he thing said, He said he suffered from depression all his yes. life. He, yeah. When being diagnosed with this, that he was going to die, he stopped being depressed. Yes. When he discovered that he's actually going to live, he got depressed again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there is some truth in that. Um, we, look, we can listen to Wilco speaking because we have got this audio yeah. interview by Mick Gold with Dr. Feelgood from February 75. So should we just listen to this brief clip of the great man? I mean, I started out like loads of people, um, just, I just wanted to play the guitar, you know, I'd seen electric guitars and I just liked the of things and I wanted to play one. When we started our group, we were doing all sort of, we was about 14 or 15, weren't we, and we were just doing shadows, numbers, and um, all, some, you know, rock and rock, rock and rock, rock and roll, and shadows numbers. That's what it was made up of. And then, after a while, I just got more and more interested in rock and roll. And st- when I started hearing more real rock and roll, and rather than we've been getting it all second hand, you know. Yeah, when you heard the original. Yeah, I heard the original, and then I just got. And that was it. And I mean, ever since then, that's the only thing I've ever played. Just that kind of rhythm and blues stuff.
good to hear your voice, Wilco. It's uh, a be- <laughs> yeah. beautiful thing. I like his later cameo as Sir Ilan Payne in Game of Thrones. <laughs> where... I, thought you might, I thought you might tell us about that, Jasper. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a fantastic quote from the Halstead Gazette that I found oh. where he talks about it, and he says, they said they wanted somebody really sinister who went around looking daggers at people before killing them. That made it easy. Looking daggers <laughs> at people is what I do all the time. It's like second nature to me, which I just found very funny. He does, uh, he does it, play that role extremely well, it should be said. Uh, Julian Temple's documentary... Uh, Oil what, City Confidential. Oil City Confidential is yeah. really, really worth seeing. About um, the whole Ca- uh, Canvey Island scene. RJ, did, I mean, what, if anything, did, did Dr. Feelgood mean to someone like you in the States? Oh yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm loving hearing you talk about him. And, uh, I came, I came late to Wilco, but you know what amazes me? And I was kind of looking for it yesterday and I'm going to have to keep looking is, is a close-ups of his hands because those hands <laughs> were like huge and he played that guitar so violently and, yeah. you know, pick free. And, uh, I, I don't know much about how I, I don't play much guitar, but I just think you, you watch him live and you just think, this man should be his hand should be bleeding they, they did I, I when i saw him at hope and anchor one like his hands were definitely bleeding wow yeah ah no amazing amazing musician and uh yeah i wish i could have spoken to him for sure I, i'm jealous of you guys <laughs> <laughs> well that, that that's great we also lost uh, rab noakes scottish folk singer who i met two or three times at this gathering of musicians and journalists that our friend Keith Altham used to to host. And he was a really, really nice guy. I can't say I really knew his music particularly well. I think I saw him supporting. First gig I ever went to was Lindisfarne, uh, supported by Genesis, and then bottom of the bill was was Rab Noakes. So he was actually probably the first artist I ever saw performing live. I mean, you know, he was a... It, a founding member of Steeler's Wheel, of course, yes. who had that big hit was stuck in the middle with you, which yeah. has had a life beyond it, itself. And, Produced by the aforementioned Lieber and Stoller, of all <laughs> people. <laughs> yes, Everything connects. Everything connects up. But I don't know, we, we're just running, we've, we've dug out uh, an interview that Rab gave to Andrew Means of Melody Maker in October 1970, so many, many moons ago. But he was a really lovely guy. Give me a sign, draw me a line, show me a branch away from here. So, you fellows, have you got any pieces you want to briefly tell us about that you have added to the library? I'm afraid I do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How long have we got? Last week, uh, Maureen Cleave interviewing Long John Baldry in the Evening Standard in 1964. Mm. And um, he's withering about the then-growing British R&B scene because he's a blues singer. Capital B, capital S. He's just a lot of, I have to say it in a fairly, fairly posh accent because Long John Baldry was a fairly well spoken man. And he said, A lot of muck is churned out of this country in the name of rhythm and blues. Earthness is a thing to have, and this means a mouth organ, bad musicianship, and singing dreadfully out of tune. <laughs> And then he later says, and many of them won't even talk properly. They can talk properly, but the new trademark of the pop singer seems to be set a sentence three words long and every word a monosyllable. It isn't <laughs> natural. They feel they have to go around saying, yeah, man, what a gas. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I love know. It. It's absolutely priceless. And again, it's a great Maureen Cleave interview. What I think is one of the 
great music journalists, you know, but that's another boring oh, rant. Um, <laughs> Freeze Simon Kirk being interviewed by Roy Carr, Enemy in 1970. This is around the time when All Right Now had just become a big hit. And I, I love this. this is a, I was once asked why I never took a solo. It's because I like to keep everything tight. I dig people like Booker T's drummer, Al Jackson, and that great guy who appears on many of the Atlantic albums, Roger Hawkins. Now, those guys really know what to play, and most important, when to play it. And I just love that because that really shows that the influence of R&B, particularly rhythm sections on British rock and roll bands, made them funkier than really most other sort of hard rock bands of that period. John Bonham at Led Zeppelin's another case in point. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. And a mad Carolyn Boucher interview with Captain Beefheart from 1972. Oh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a freak. All that image was created for me by Frank Zappa. He used me. He was trying to keep the artist to be back. He stole my ideas from me in the desert. <laughs> That's fabulous. I mean, you, you know, I, I need to insert the episode we did with Caroline, yes. where she talks so brilliantly about uh, about Captain Beefheart and Frank That's Zappa. Super. It's well worth checking that out. Yeah. <laughs> this week, just a couple of weeks um, the Bee Bumble of Bee Bumble and the Stingers, again to Maureen Cleave and Evening's Dad in 1962. Of course, that was actually Kim Fowler's construct, wasn't it, Bee Bumble? And it was, but he doesn't get a mention in this piece. No, he doesn't get a mention in this piece at all. But that, their thing was like making pop versions of classical music. And he says, you see, the tune has to be recognisable to the public. Now, Shostakovich, he wouldn't do no tunes there, which I think is absolutely marvellous. Paul Simon interviewed by Pete Johnson at the Times in 1967, Simon Garfunkel. By June of last year, I was pretty happy. I'd learned the rules and we'd had three top three hit, five hits in a row. I felt secure for the first time. I was amazed at the superabundance of opulence in this thing, but I didn't want to continue only for money. And he says, I wonder if I'm creating something that's valid. Art worries whether he's creating anything. Mm. Uh, and lastly, Olivia Newton-John saying, interviewed by Wayne Robbins for Newsday 1977, I don't think I ever had an identity crisis. All teens go through traumas, but you mean the who am I thing? No, I always knew who I was, which I really like. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Makes change from the usual <laughs> blouse tearing that people seem to go. In for. One did always sense that with, with her that she was pretty grounded, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, you know? yeah. Not a tortured pop soul. <laughs> <laughs> that's my lot. Okay, Jasper. I'll just briefly mention two things. First of which is Dead Mouse promises more than just music. Evelyn McDonald in the Los Angeles Times in 2010. And I just thought this was quite an interesting short interview because it kind of goes into some of his background. He's obviously now one of the biggest DJs on the planet, but it describes him as the Nine Inch Nails fan got his start hanging out in Niagara Falls studios and record stores. He became a Pro Tools expert and began making his own tracks. In the information diaspora of the internet age, those tracks found some powerful, friendly ears. Fellow Pro Tools guru Steve Duda passed one on to Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee. Zimmerman, who was still living with his mum at the time, and Lee bonded over beats and became close friends and collaborators, which is just a <laughs> kind of slightly <laughs> rogue 
connection that that I that I hadn't really clocked. And it goes on to talk about you know his big mouse head that he wears when he DJs that he can't see anything through, so he then has to take <laughs> it off. But it's interesting because he's already thinking about the idea of the DJ show, which has become such a huge kind of sure. industry. And he's saying it's got it's going to be a visual trip as well as audio. It's going to be like going to a movie you're paying for a show so i'm going to give it which i think is kind of you know speaks to the the desire that people have when they go and see a, a dj they want to see something more than just someone standing behind some decks a lot of the time yes and then the <laughs> other thing is asia a review nick southall in stylus a review of asian dub foundations community music which is just a really well-written very positive review. Proactive in every respect, ADF are Britain's cross-cultural positivist answer to rage against the machine and just about the only good thing to emerge from 18 years of Tory government. Community Music is their third and best album, spending them not just as one of the most important bands in Britain, but as one of the best. And it's kind of strange to read now that in 2003, he's writing, Britain today is a country where racial tensions are at an all-time high and right-wing politics are more visible than at any time since the 1940s. Well, strap in, Nick. Now more than <laughs> ever, we need people like Asian Dub Foundation to help bring together communities and cultures that would otherwise be driven apart by ignorance and intolerance. Community music is a glorious, unifying example of what can be achieved if our nation could finally grow up and demonstrate the same kind of maturity and intelligence that Asian Dub Foundation are so clearly possessed of. They used to sound like a riot being incited. Now they sound like a party being thrown. I just think mm. it's a really well-written summing up of something and you read it and you go, oh shit, things have got so much worse, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of those one of those pieces <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you jasper that's great well listen it remains for us to thank the great rj smith for uh joining us today do as i say rush out and buy uh, chuck berry in american life also do check out the rocksback pages archive online you'll find over fifty thousand articles from abba to zappa and over 800 audio interviews with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. Uh, check to see if your local library subscribes, and if it doesn't, maybe suggest that they take a trial. We'll be back in two weeks in the office, for the first time in ages, rather than on Zoom, with Paul Gorman, who's going to come and talk to us about his history of music journalism, Totally Wired. So we'll look forward to that. Splendid. But that's it. It's time to say goodbye. Thank you so much for joining us today, RJ. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much. <laughs> That concludes episode 141 of the Roxback Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest RJ Smith. Chuck Berry, An American Life is published by Omnibus in the UK and Hachette in the US and is available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Roxback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. 